Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Talking Late Night with Max Cantor. I'm your host, Max Cantor. Uh, this is a show where we talk to comedians to learn about their late night influences and also to learn about their career and just basically how they got so funny. Today, I have a very, very special guest on the show. He's an actor. He's a writer. He is the creator of the sketch group, The Kids in the Hall. He hosts his own podcast. He was nominated for an Emmy. He lives in Canada, and he has a very long Wikipedia page where I got all these facts from. So please welcome <laughs> to the show, Kevin McDonald. Kevin, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me, Max. Thank you. I love how living in Canada is as important as being nominated for an Emmy. Everyone in Canada will be very proud of that. <laughs> I consider them equally as interesting, and I feel like I can yes, ask yes, uh, about both of those We were actually aspects. nominated for three Emmys, and we lost every year, and uh, our Emmy was for writing, and they always put that first, and the, for some reason we had to sit up front, and we couldn't leave, so uh, <laughs> we'd lose and then uh, have to sit there for four hours. Three years so, in a row. Wait, so they would specifically put you up front even though they knew that you weren't going to win? <laughs> I wonder if they did know. I, I guess somebody knows. Um, yeah, well, all the writing nominees were up front. Um, I guess, I don't know why. Like, the, the big actors were, like, uh, three or four rows back, probably because they were closer to the exits, so they could leave <laughs> when they were disgusted. And, and, and our first uh, year we lost, Scott Thompson, one of the kids in the hall, uh, I know this is not the part about talking about me, Adam. Sorry, I'm talking about this. Um, he uh, on camera, he, he, uh, he said, "Oh no, that's unfair." When we lost. <laughs> well, look, at least he's speaking the truth. You know, he said what everyone else His was truth. thinking. <laughs> ben Stiller probably disagreed with him. He's the guy that won. Oh wow! Well, okay. Uh, we, we lost to Ben Stiller, Dennis Miller, and then Dennis Miller again. I kept thinking that the, the, all our uh, people that beat us rhymed that the next person that was going to beat us would be uh, Phyllis Diller. But um, <laughs> never happened. Well, you know what? On a positive note, I guess sitting in the front row, you got to really see everyone up close if you want to look at the positives. Yeah, yeah. I saw Jerry Lewis yell at his assistant. I saw Bob Hope not yell at his assistant in a mean way, but he yelled for his assistant because he was half blind. And he couldn't, um, uh, Russ, where the hell are you? Russ! He sort of felt sorry for him. Then Russ came running in and got him. So, so I saw old comedians yell at their assistants. So that was kind of fun. The moral of the Emmy story is if you're an assistant, you're going to get yelled at by your boss. Yes. yes and, and if you're a Canadian writer, you're going to lose and then sit for four hours. But in the front row. Yes. So it's positive. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad. I'm really glad you're on the show. Um, I'm excited to Thank talk you. to you. Um, and to learn um, what influenced you in your life. So like I told you in our, in our pre-show warm-up, uh, I was influenced growing up by late-night talk shows. I just fell in love with them. So when you were growing up, what type of stuff on late-night TV influenced you? Well, actually, because when people always ask me my uh, um, influences, influ I, never, I always forget how to pronounce the, like, like, what syllable to put the pronunciation on. Influences? Influences? Influence? Influences? Influences. <laughs> my influences. Um, uh, I always forget to say this particular person because maybe, maybe I'm prejudiced against late night comics and I put them in a late night kind of ghetto, but it's totally unfair because the person I'm about to tell you, I was about your age <clears throat> when he came on, uh, um, give or take a few years, and he, it really influenced me and influenced the kids in the hall, the original kids in the hall at the time. Uh, I'm going to tease you a bit before I say who it is, that you can probably guess. Um, we used to come to my house. Every time my girlfriend split up with me um, and um, uh, I was alone, uh, the original kids in the hall, Dave Foley, Luke Channel, Kazmiri, would come to my apartment and cheer me up, and we'd put on David Letterman. David Letterman, and he was a major influence on us, and we so, took a lot from him. And um, it, it was he was so smart. Uh, he was cynical and sarcastic. Uh, that's not what we loved about him, but, but <laughs> it was interesting to watch. But it was so. I'm about to use a word that isn't hip anymore, uh, but it's the word hip. He was so hip. You know, it was it was such what late night should be. Because uh, before that, late night was like rock and roll concerts, which was cool. Um, and Tom Snyder interviewing people, which was also good. 
but uh, but it wasn't hip in a way that would attract someone who was like 21 at the time. I was 21, and uh, when he first came on, and also I'd follow him for a few years. Um, I'd seen him do stand-up shows. I'll stop talking in a second. I swear. I saw him do stand-up shows, and he was also a regular Mary Tyler Moore, not her famous show, but the second show, the variety show that only lasted a year. He was a regular on that with Michael Keaton. I sort of fell in love with both of them. And then he had a morning show where he did this kind of hip comedy. It was a talk show, and it, it got canceled pretty quickly because it was too weird for morning television. And then um, somehow he convinced NBC, um, yeah, it was NBC first, uh, convinced NBC to give him a late-night talk show. And that's when he found his audience. And I, I, I think it was cult for a long time before, like, a good, ra- good ratings. But they did crazy things. They did hip, like, like talking um, to the woman who in the building across the street from his office in New York because he thought she was kind of cute. So they would put a camera in there. But they didn't put the camera in her office. They put the camera from Letterman's office. So you always saw her way in the distance. And he would sort of talk to her and flirt with her. Like stuff like that kind of like, like drove us uh, comically crazy. And we, uh, we love David Letterman. So you watched Letterman not really for like the interviews, but for the sketches he was doing and the bits he was doing. Yeah, the, the ideas. Um, I'm trying to think of an example of some of the ideas. Uh, I, can't, I, I know as soon as I get off the phone, I'll think of some. Um, <laughs> but here's something. Uh, years later, I saw that the, the Letterman show copied one of my ideas. Really? Uh, you be the judge whether it's a copy or not. And um, first of all, if I'm right, uh, and I assume I'm right, I was really honored. I thought, oh, God, the Letterman writers are watching us. And they thought it was funny. I did a Kids in the Hall sketch. I wrote a Kids in the Hall sketch where it's a fake sketch where it's uh, Dave Foley and I pretend we're doing a restaurant scene and Scott Thompson comes over and does a gay waiter, which he did a lot of. So um, in the sketch, uh, I turn to Scott and say, this isn't a real sketch, Scott. This is a party. Congratulations. This is the hundredth time you played a gay waiter. And then like a maramba band comes out and, um, and the confetti comes over and we give him a cake and he pretends to be really, and he cries. It's the hundredth time he played a gay waiter. And then a few months later, I saw the Letterman show, and he ate something. I forget what it was. It looked like a pickle, but it was something disgusting. And he ate it, and then all of a sudden, Paul Schaefer said, Congratulations, David. That's the hundredth time you've eaten something disgusting for a cheap laugh. And confetti came out, and, and again, just like us, the mariachi band came out. So I'm pretty sure that they saw us. And started, but I love that. And that's the kind of thing they used to do. And in a way, that kind of idea that I thought of, was kind of influenced by watching David Letterman so much. So it was sort of a full circle of idea, I would say, because that's exactly the kind of thing I loved. Because um, when I was a kid, I would love Jerry Lewis and like mainstream comedy, and I would love Andy Kaufman and later David Letterman when I was a little older. Uh, I think to be a comic, you've got to be able to do a spit take, and you've got to do um, weird conceptual stuff at the same time. That's to me, is a complete comedian. So it's funny though that you that you bring up David Letterman because I'm currently I'm reading a a book about David Letterman and in it they they just describe all the crazy stuff he used to do and yeah. they were talking about how for one episode he spoofed a Christmas special like the whole thing right? was just fun of a Christmas special and I was talking to my friend about how he won an Emmy for spoofing this Christmas special. And they were like, that's such a lame idea, spoofing a Christmas special. Like, that's been done so many times. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. He was the first one to spoof a exactly. Christmas special. Like, he was the first in so yeah. many things. Exactly. And that's wild for, like, a whole talk show to do that. Like, like for the whole episode, was it for the whole episode? That's pretty wild. Uh, like, Johnny Carson, who's, like, it was another influence of mine. He, he was the greatest traditional talk show host, but he never would have done that in a million years. Right. And I, I think I think even today, when you look at all talk shows that go on today, a lot of them are stuff that, that they're doing because David Letterman did it first. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And I know a lot of people a little younger than me, <laughs> still a lot younger than me, but older than you, in their like mid-30s to early 40s, they think Conan O'Brien did it first because um, mm-hmm. Conan O'Brien did similar stuff. And he's also a great writer. He wrote some of the greatest Saturday Night Live sketches like ever. Um, yeah, but he definitely came in the wake of David Letterman. And, and they're too young to know that. Because by the time they're watching late night TV, David Letterman was a little older and he was still funny. 
um, but he was grumpier and he had less energy to do the, the crazy things. Right. So speaking of Conan, did you ever watch Conan 2 or you were primarily a Letterman fan? No, I watched Conan. It was good. But, um, um, in, well, for one thing, I knew him before the show because we had the same boss, Lauren Michaels, and he was sort of a peer. So maybe it was hard for me. On one hand, it was hard for me to admit that he could be better than Letterman. And on the other hand, I think even if I was just a fan of comedy, I'm pretty sure I would always think the Letterman was better than Conan. Not that it's a contest, and the Conan Bryan show was great, and they did great weird stuff. But um, I always have to give more points. Not that it's a competition, my mother would say, um, to the person who did it first. And I also think they did it the weirdest, too. Like, did it the best, uh, David Letterman. And also, like, it, it was a good show. His interviews were super interesting because he wasn't like Johnny Carson. He would listen to the point of only, like, telling a good joke. He would say sarcastic asshole-type things <laughs> to the guests. Yeah. And that was kind of good TV to watch. And also, uh, the Paul Schaefer band, they were like an amazing band. And, um, and when they ever had singers on, or even famous rock bands, they would play with the Paul Schaefer band. And so even just as an exciting overall television experience, music and, and, and interviews and stuff, and they had great acts. That was the first time I saw, this would mean nothing to you, you're so young, but <laughs> it was the first time I saw R.E.M. And this was when R.E.M. was just starting and they were a cult band. It took them five or six years to be like a mainstream popular band. They were this weird cult band, and it was amazing watching them. I, I got their first album the next day. It, it was like sort of influenced by the Velvet Underground and the Birds, but the lead singer was so weird, and he would not talk to Letterman. Letterman came over after one of their songs and talked to him, and the lead singer um, put literally pushed his hair over his eyes and sat down uh, by the drums, and everybody else talked to David Letterman. And it, and it was... That was the exact right kind of show for something like that to happen, uh, like like weird stuff like that. It, it made perfect sense to David Letterman. It would never have happened to Johnny Carson. Right. Yeah, no one would ever treat Johnny Carson like that in a million years. But I guess, you know, they felt comfortable acting that way with David Letterman. Yeah, and David Letterman was fine with that because he, he was, uh, um, you know, I keep using the word weird, but it's more like that. It's more anti-establishment. Yeah. It's more, uh, <laughs> screw you guys who wear suits. It's, right. it's breaking the rules, um, but in an entertaining way. It's sort of what I like about the Marx Brothers, uh, the way they're always fighting the people in charge, and the people in charge and institutions. David Letterman sort of represented that to me. And that, to me, is another important element of comedy. Um, to be funny is the most important thing, but to uh, thumb your nose at uh, <laughs> the big, powerful people that run the world... Uh, that's what the comedy should also be about. It, it seems... And, and Johnny Carson, as good as he was, he was one of the big, white, powerful people that ruled the world. It, yeah, it's true. He was. Yes. But it seems like the more the more we talk about David Letterman and, and, and R.E.M. too, it seems like as you were growing up, you liked the weird things. And I mean that in the best way yeah. possible. Absolutely. Abs like I said, I, I also love Jerry Lewis. But um, Andy Kaufman, the, um, uh, like when I saw that, um, the things he did on stage, like like the anti comedy, like he was on one show where uh, he was introduced, and all he did was uh, read the book Wuthering Heights for five minutes <laughs> until they got to a commercial, like uh, and that really influenced me. Or Albert Brooks, um, before I loved his movies, he was a stand up that did really conceptual weird things. Uh, I forget his ventriloquist thing, but it's just conceptual about what a guy would do with a ventriloquist dummy. And um, <clears throat> those comics, like I say, um, and even Steve Martin. Steve Martin was sort of a, because it's sort of anti-comedy. And I think David Letterman came in the wake of anti-comedy that, that Annie Kaufman sort of started. And Steve Martin sort of did anti-comedy. And he made it somehow popular. It's like anti-comedy to me is a comic making fun of comedy while still loving and celebrating it at the same time. And I think it's very hard to do. To, uh, where Andy Coffin probably made fun of it more, and if people didn't enjoy it, he didn't care. Um, but Steve Martin <laughs> made fun of it. Like when he put an arrow through his head, he was making fun of a guy. Uh, he would be making fun of a kind of bad comic who would put the arrow through his head. But in the same hand, he also knows, um, uh, at the same time, he also knows that it's funny. 
to put an arrow through your head. And that's, uh, that's very hard to do. And that reminds me, one of my favorite late night talk show things I've ever seen in my life. Can I tell you? Oh, yeah. Johnny Carson, The Tonight Show, he brought, because uh, this is very conceptual. My favorite kind of comedy is conceptual. Don't ask me to define it because I may have trouble. Later I could write an email to you and you could say it on your next uh, show. But I guess it's a, based on a concept. Uh, based on, it's about ideas. But anyway, Johnny Carson introduced Steve Martin. And I remember they had a big set in those days. So the curtain raised and Steve Martin was in a car, a real car. And he drove, his way, <laughs> he drove all his way to the microphone. And he rolled down his window, picked up the microphone, and did five minutes of stand-up comedy. <laughs> and then when it was done, uh, Johnny Carson called him over to the desk. So he drove over to the desk. And then he, uh, <laughs> he ordered food. And like, it was like a drive-in. Uh, they put a tray, and he ate and talked to Johnny Carson. And then when he was done, he said, goodbye, everybody. He started the car, and he, and he drove off the set. Uh, set. <laughs> and that, to me, is a defining moment of comedy in my life. That you can do, that's based on ideas. You can think of an idea like that. You could tell the Johnny Carson producers, and they could say yes. And it's the weirdest idea in the world. But it's also fun, even to, the audience, even to an audience member who isn't weird, they're going to laugh their heads off. You bringing up Steve Martin on Johnny Carson reminded me of a story that I read of Steve Martin on Johnny Carson, where he tells everybody he has to leave early. I don't know if you know, you know this one, but he tells everyone he has to leave early. Everyone gets very sad. They're like, oh, and he's like, he's like, okay, goodbye, everybody. He goes through the curtain. The band plays like a whole big shebang. And then literally probably like five seconds later, maybe six seconds, he comes back out crying, right? And, uh, <laughs> and so he sits back down at the desk, and Johnny Carson's like smiling, laughing. He's like, I, I don't understand. Why, why are you back? And Steve Martin goes, I, I didn't have anywhere to go. I lied to you. I just wanted to say I had somewhere to go. <laughs> you know, it's that same type of just absurd, weird type yeah. of like anti-comedy. I really like that word. Anti-comedy, anti exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a good phrase for us. And uh, it's absurdism. And um, I, I have seen that. And it's um, it's uh, it's totally brilliant. It's also based on like the real superstars, like Bob Hope and Frank Sinatra. They would come on, they would talk their bit, and they wouldn't wait till the end of the show like every other guest. They would they would say they have to get going. Right. It's also sort of like making fun of the suit again of the guy in power, right. uh, making fun of something like that. And it it it's very strong uh, an idea on many levels. Right. So, so when you were a kid and a teenager, and especially a young adult, when you first are are slowly starting to find out, you know, hey, I can make people laugh. I'm pretty funny. Uh, the first stuff you did was it more of this anti-comedy type of material? I didn't have the confidence for anti-comedy um, when I first started writing stuff. I wrote stuff when I was sixteen and seventeen that no one's ever seen. I didn't show it to anyone. But I think um, at that point, it was very heavily influenced, if I said right, um, by SCTV. Have you ever seen the Canadian sketch show SCTV? Mm -mm. No, but I know uh, I was actually, weirdly enough, in preparation for our interview, I was just I was trying to watch as much sketch comedy as possible. And I watched uh, a sketch by them that I thought was hilarious. And it was like a game show. Type. Yes. Yeah, yeah, like like wits, a half wits or something. It, uh, no, that was it was a that was suggested a high, It was an IQ or high Q or. Right, right. Yeah, they did a few. Yeah, the first one was high Q or something, and the second one was half wit. They're both brilliant. They're yeah, both brilliant they sketches. Yeah, and John Candy was in this show. Martin Short, and oh. Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy, who later was American Pie. They were brilliant, and they had the best premise of any sketch show ever. If you want to do parody. They did, um, it was like uh, they were in a town called Mellonville, and they had a really, really low-budget um, comedy network. Uh, the network. That was the, what they pretended. Anyway, that's what they pretended. It was really in Toronto. And at first, before they made it big, they were really in a really low-budget TV station. So uh, it really added to it. And so the whole half-hour episode, they pretended to be their broadcast day for a really low-budget network so they can make fun of TV shows. They can make fun of commercials. They would have movies of the week, and they can make fun of movies. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was brilliant. Um, I remember the Ben-Hur parody. Where <laughs> have you ever seen the movie Ben-Hur? Uh-uh, no. 
It doesn't matter. It's a big, big religious epic. It was uh, like it won twelve Academy Awards in its oh. day, and Jesus has a Jesus Christ has a. You never see his face. You just see his hands. And the lead character Ben Hur, um, bit by bit, gets sucked into being a, a, a Jesus Christ fanatic. Uh, but the beginning, he's a slave, Ben Hur, and there's a famous scene in Ben Hur where uh, Jesus Christ gives water to all the slaves, even though no one's allowed to. And the Roman guard's about to uh, whip him, but he looks in Jesus' face, and he can't. And we never see Jesus say, we just see him back from his back, and we see his hands. In the Ben-Hur parody in SCTV, um, <laughs> the guy playing Ben-Hur uh, fell down because they're supposed to be in the desert, and, and he needs water, and Jesus comes to give him water, but he has this real like cheesy suit and cufflinks and a lot of diamond rings on his fingers, <laughs> like he's like Jerry Lewis or something. And um, it was very, like, smart parody like that. And when I first started writing sketches, uh, I was writing parody. Uh, I, I, the first two sketches I wrote, I wrote in one day. Um, uh, never did them, never read them to anybody. Uh, and you could try to do them in one day because they're similar. They're similar ideas. It was a parody of the, have you heard of the Broadway play in the movie The Odd Couple, in the TV show? Yeah, yeah. Where one guy's um, in need and then one guy's a slob. Right. I wrote yeah. a parody sketch called The Odd Schizophrenic, where there was one guy and he was both need and, and a slob. <laughs> and then I, I did a parody of the movie Psycho, but it was called Psychosomatic. So it's the same kind of idea. And instead of someone getting knifed in the shower, there's a guy in the shower and he's screaming in pain, but he's just making it up because he's psychosomatic. And uh, so I could uh, say um, the first things I was influenced by was parody. First of all, SCTV did the best parody ever. So um, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not something um, that I would grow to do later, but uh, also Mel Brooks was around um, uh, doing great parody. And it's, it, I think it's an easier, before you get your confidence as a writer, as a comedy writer, it's an easier thing to start when you're like a kid, like a teenager. Then as I got my confidence um, and my stage legs a bit, then the anti-comedy started getting ridden by me, I think. So how old were you when you first started writing these uh, sketches? Yeah, like 16, 17, 18, somewhere around there. I'm saying three years, so probably 17. When I saw the movie Young Frankenstein as a kid, Mel Brooks classic with Gene Wilder, mm -hmm. uh, I loved it so much. I loved Gene Wilder so much. I loved the movie so much that I went home. <laughs> um, I stayed up till 3 in the morning, and I, it didn't... I wasn't good enough that it inspired me to write new stuff. I wrote out the movie as much as I could remember it. Cause uh, I went, it was the, like, I couldn't get a video. There was no videos the, those days and the movie was new anyway. So I, um, I wrote out like <laughs> 30 or 40 pages of everything I remembered about the movie. Then I went to bed and um, the next morning when I woke up, I read it and it was very exciting to me. That, that makes me sound crazy, but there you go. Well, I guess that's how they used to do, you know, uh, pirating back when you yeah. were <laughs> you wrote it it was hard work yeah the police went after them less because they felt sorry for the piraters because they did such hard work the police ended up just reading reading all everything they had written no one was ever arrested yeah. but that's how they telling them oh you missed the joke <laughs> so so when you're you know you're writing these sketches you're writing out uh these movies is that all you did or did you also venture into like improv and stand-up as well um, stand-up took me many, many years, just like just a few years ago, but, but improv was, uh, when I, by the time I was 19, um, because in high school, and where I grew up in Toronto, back in the, not anymore, back in those days, you had five years of high school, uh, for some reason, to get you, like, ready for college, and, um, everybody was telling me that I was funny on my friends, and I should go to stand-up, and this was the 1980 sort of uh, sort of the beginning, uh, give or take a year, of the boom of stand-up comedy. And there were big stand-up clubs in Toronto. And I knew instinctively that stand-up wasn't the way that I was going to be funny in my career. Um, I do it now, I do it later, but I sort of like cheat. Uh, I, I'm more like, tell, you probably saw in Atlanta, tell like um, sort of stories and weird and absurdism and conceptual stuff. Just to stand up and tell jokes some of my strengths. So I went to college at 19 to study acting, but they kicked me out after three months because they said I was, <laughs> I was too funny. 
and I was like a one-legged actor. They didn't think I could do drama. I still disagree with that, but I haven't proved them wrong yet because I haven't done drama ever. Um, I, I probably got emotionally scarred to do drama. But um, they, one teacher, the improv teacher, said that I was very good, and he got me into um, – he didn't get me into it, but, but, he, uh, but he told me the Second City gave workshops. I didn't even know they did. I just thought they were a TV show. But they were also like a big stage show in Toronto. And uh, I took workshops, and that's how I started improv. And in my first workshop, everybody was over 35. There were only two teenagers. It was like, and the other teenager was Mike Myers. So Mike Myers and I started like doing improv together. And he was so good right away. They hired him after a year, and he was, uh, he was younger than me. He was like 18 when they hired him. And no one that young had ever been hired by Second City before. And I was sad that he was... Uh, hired that he wouldn't be my friend i'd be with all these old guys and then the very first workshop without him dave foley um oh. came into the workshop and then at the end of that class um i didn't want to lose him i didn't know his name but i told him do you want to join my comedy troupe and i didn't have a comedy troupe and he said yes so we started a comedy troupe that ended up yeah, becoming, a lot of story into that. that but that comedy troupe ended up being the kids in the hall right yep that's it. That's us. Dave Foley and I were the founding members. Uh, and all, all, all because, because, like, he came into the work. And we had chemistry right away. Like, right away, we were, like, put together in a... Uh, it wasn't even a scene. It was a mere exercise. And we made each other laugh, and we, did, we broke the rules. You know what a mere exercise is? Mm. Where two people mirror each other's movements. The teacher, oh. like, at the beginning of the class, I had no idea who Dave was. Um, he, the, the teacher, though split everyone into two groups and just as a warm-up you had to mirror each other's movements as if you were looking into a mirror and uh right away we had chemistry we started doing silly movements and then we slowly uh mirrored our way to the floor and then we uh crawled our <laughs> we both crawled outside of the theater and we were on the sidewalk and uh through the window we saw the teacher angrily gesturing for us to get back in and so, um, again, that's like what I was talking about Letterman. Um, we were sort of uh, giving it to the man, which was our teacher, our poor teacher at this point, which, again, is an important element to comedy. And we had chemistry right away. And by the uh, three hours later, when the workshop was over, we were starting a comedy troupe. Wow. So really, I mean, when, when you whittle it all down, the Kids in the Hall was founded because you wanted to have a friend. <laughs> sort of, uh, but yeah, it's sort of, and that sounds funny, but uh, but it's true. <laughs> but like um, a comedy friend, a oh, friend who, because I grew up in a suburb of Toronto, Mississauga, and people thought I was funny, but no one could joke with me. No one was good enough to joke with me, right? Uh, no one. Um, I had no fun like spritzing. Uh, that's an old comedy term for just saying jokes with a friend or. Or comedy jamming, no one could keep up with me. That'd be impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was like uh, I was a gunslinger of comedy, and I could outdraw anybody in Mississauga. And I go to Toronto, and right away I see two people who can outdraw me, or at least draw as fast, Mike Myers and Dave Foley. And it, you know, it was a very exciting time. So I wanted a friend. You know, it's just like being in a band in a small town and finding no one that, that would work in your band and then moving to a slightly bigger town, and then finding lots of people, or a city, and then finding lots of people um, who have the same uh, spirit of you and, and are interested in the same things. And that's what it was like. Because, uh, yeah, in my suburb, I was the funniest gunslinger. Right. But you don't want to be that. You don't want to be alone, especially if you're like me, if you don't want to be a stand-up. You want a lot of like-minded people, and you want to, uh, I wanted to start a troupe. I guess I, guess I always thought that, because of Monty Python, and in a weird way, the Beatles... My first conscious memories are of listening to my Aunt Judy's Beatle albums, and finally she gave them to me. And I always thought I'd be in a group. Um, until I was 14, I thought it'd be music, but I, I can't play anything, really. So um, it became comedy. Okay. So after, after the kids in the hall form and you get all the members together, talk about how what role Lorne Michaels played in, in really... I, I I don't want to use this word, but blossoming, blossoming kids <laughs> in the hall. Uh, <laughs> uh, he was the gardener, the gardener of comedy. He was the gardener. We were the flowers of comedy. Um, watered you and well, you blossomed. You know, the, like his his his. Uh, in terms of blossoming us, the key thing about Lauren Michaels, and 
this comes with a grain of salt because it's from a guy who was in his little tiny show, the Kids in the Hall show that was in Toronto, and Lauren lived in New York. But I wonder if some of the Saturday Night Live people would say the same thing. In a, like, not quite as much, but he left us alone. He sort of like trusted us. Um, I guess the question would be, if you're interested enough to debate these things, did he leave us alone because he didn't want to fly to Toronto a lot, even though he was from there? Uh, or, or did he, uh, I guess a little bit of both. Yeah, he trusted us enough to give a TV show, and we, he sort of let our, uh, us blossom. He let us do everything. Um, he was sort of almost hands-on in the pilot. He let us write anything we wanted. Um, his only advice was, I know you're going to be tempted to do your old stage sketches, because we were discovered from the, uh, by him as a stage uh, a comedy troupe doing a, uh, a show every Monday night in a club in Toronto. And it, it was always like, we pretended we had a TV show, because it was always new sketches, and we had lots of good sketches. And he said, I know you're going to be tempted for this pilot uh, to get a TV show to do your OSA sketches, but remember you're on TV, and so write some things that are filmic and, and quicker paced and have some cut twos in them. Um, and that was great advice, uh, but that, that was sort of it. Um, but we took it away from that. And then we, he said, write too, uh, write, uh, too many sketches, because um, this is Lord Michaels talking, because I want to cut out the weakest ones. Write, um, uh, let's say the, the show has 12 sketches, write 16. Uh, and if they're all 16 good sketches, if I cut off the four weakest ones, uh, we're going to have a great show. He was very comically smart. He is very comically smart, I assume. He's still smart. <laughs> so, uh, so I think the, the, the best way, uh, the way that he helped us blossom was letting us blossom. He put us in the sun. He put the right amount of water on us every now and then. And then he just watches uh, Bloom. I, you know, coming I'm taking in, your flower analogy and going uh, running with it. I, I'll tell you, coming into the show, I did not know we'd end up talking about flowers. But you know what? <laughs> I, it's okay. It's okay. It got the point across, and that's all that matters. Yeah, yeah. No, I got the point across. It, it was good. It was good. Blossoming. So I know, like, obviously, I've never met Lauren Michaels, and you're probably the only person I know who has met him. But reading all, like, the people who audition for Saturday Night Live, they say, you know, it's so hard because he doesn't laugh at anything, and it's so scary. <laughs> Did you ever get that vibe from him that it was like, oh, he's really judging us, or was he just kind of like a cool, laid-back kind of guy? Like I said, it's different with us because he, um, we didn't see him that much. Um, when we... Um, when our stage show in 1985 got so much press that he sent a talent scout to us, he sent a talent scout to us. In fact, it wasn't a talent scout. It was Franken and Davis. Um, you know, Al Franken, um, the comedy genius, and now he's a famous senator mm-hmm. for the yeah. Democrats. The, the, um, and I grew up watching them, loving them. They saw, uh, like, they saw us. They didn't want to uh, like pay for five tickets to uh, Saturday Night Live. And then um, they liked all of us. But they didn't have any imagination, so they just and they couldn't hire all five of us, so they hired the two oldest ones as writers for Saturday Night Live. This was the the, the worst Saturday Night Live year ever, sadly for them. It was the Anthony Michael Hall year in 1985, oh. and um, and then finally, I still hadn't met him the whole year. Mark and Bruce from the Kids in the Hall worked on Saturday Night Live, and then at the end, Lauren Michaels finally flew to Toronto because his family was from there. He grew up there, see his family, and he saw. We put on a special, we had a week, we were doing a week of shows, and he saw it, and the interesting thing was that the show he saw was a bad show, so we thought we blew it, we weren't going to get a TV deal with him, and then afterwards, and you, you would think that he keeps his cards close to his chest, but after the show, he told us he was interested and didn't want to pursue a TV show with us, and uh, I remember Dave fully said, but you saw a shitty show, and uh, he said, um, I'm going to do my bad Lauren impression, he said, no, you know, you really learn a lot from seeing a good comic at their worst. And I learned more from you guys than uh, if I would have seen you uh, put on a good show. No, you're good. Let's do a show. <laughs> and uh, as for laughing, I haven't seen that many times to actually uh, like out laugh. If I saw him more, maybe I would. But he's, he has a sort of crooked smile where his lip goes up. And that's him <laughs> laughing a lot. And if you make him smile like that, you feel very proud. So, so you got your TV show, and then, you know, did you feel like, okay, we made it, you know, we got our TV show, or did you feel like there was more, more you wanted to accomplish? Well, two things. First of all, there was more than we wanted, because we grew up watching Money Python, so our plan was always to do a TV show for four or five years, we did it for five years, 
do a movie, which we did, and then have the movie so enormously successful, <laughs> like Monty Python, we would do a movie every three or four years. And that's where it sort of fell apart. Um, but even we still follow that Bible, just in a less, um, uh, less amazingly popular way. We get together every three or four years, and we do a tour, or we, we did a miniseries a few years ago. So we're, we're still that Bible. But also, to answer your question more fully, when you get the TV show, you're excited for the first, we were excited for the first week, um, and then we get nervous, and then we start writing sketches way earlier than we're supposed to, and then the first year became, you know, struggling to stay on the air, mm-hmm. struggling not to, like, fight with each other, because everybody was fighting for air time, because you think the show might get canceled at any time, and, uh, and so you want to be on, <laughs> like, as much as possible, and um, and also... We uh, this only happened. It doesn't happen every TV show. This happened to us, but we had a conflict with the guy who was in charge, who was the producer director, who was the showrunner of the show. He was a friend of Bruce's, and some of us thought he was awful, and some of us, in, including Bruce, because he was his friend, thought he was great. And so uh, we fought the whole sh- um, the, the whole series. And uh, I know in my heart that I uh, that he was bad. Uh, this guy, he was he's bad at this because he had done low key comedy drama movies before, and he couldn't do hard comedy. It wasn't in his heart to do hard com- comedy. He um, and because I'm the hardest uh, of the, I'm the, I'm not the best, but I do the hardest comedy. I make the like faces. I'm like less smart than the others. He liked me the least, and for the first half of the season, he. He didn't pick a lot of my sketches, and I wasn't in. I remember Mike Myers uh, calling me and saying, how come you're not in the show? And he was on, Mike Myers on Saturday Night Live at that point, and that sort of broke my heart. And then Dave Foley, who um, I was sort of passive. Dave Foley got angry at this guy for not putting me in the show. And then finally, halfway through the season, Lauren Michaels said, you know, you got to put Kevin Moore in the show. It's kind of weird. It's like four guys and their friends they let in every now and then. And then he put me in too much. But at the end uh, of that season, also, uh, so we didn't really enjoy it. It was work. We enjoyed it, but we didn't think we had made it. We definitely enjoyed it, but uh, but we were fighting all the time. And then um, before we finished the series, we heard that HBO had canceled us. Oh. So uh, (laughs) they canceled us. And then, uh, but still, and with only half our episodes that aired, um, so we thought it was over and then we had sort of fun the last month doing the last like four or five shows cause it was canceled, like sad fun. But then all these shows started airing and, uh, we didn't get good ratings, but critics, important sort of critics around the United States started giving us great reviews. And then we started winning awards. We got nominated for an Emmy and then we won, uh, Back then, HBO wasn't allowed to go in the Emmys, but the cable TV had something called the Ace Awards, mm-hmm. and we were nominated against like uh, Gary Shandling's show and stuff like that. And Mark McKinney, one of the kids in the hall, the guy that plays the Head Crusher, he won Best Actor in a comedy series, and um, we were so critically loved. We're lucky; we've been our whole career that HBO changed their mind. And so the first thing we did was we, uh, we got the other two. <laughs> we got Mark McKinney and Bruce McCullough to agree with the three of us, uh, and we fired the showrunner. And then s- season two and season three were so much more fun. We felt less pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still never thought we'd made it, because it it's all work. It's fun work. It's a great job. It's not working at a construction company, being on the 18th floor, scaffolding, making a building. Um, but it's work. So you don't think about we made it. Um, you, you did one good sketch, and then right away you think, the next sketch has to be just as good. Um, at least that's how we thought. But uh, but season two and season three, as a result, because we were we were more loose than we've ever been, were sort of our best seasons. And I would put them up against the best season of any other sketch show, except maybe the best season of Monty Python, which probably would blow us out of the water. Because we um, we we stayed late at the office, and when the sketches were written, we try to find a way to connect them and make great episodes that made sense that had a theme. And um, and we sort of lost that a bit in season four, season five. We got a little our version of lazy, but um, but <laughs> answer your question, we never ever thought we'd made it. Yeah, I don't think you should be satisfied. I mean, you can feel you made it and not be satisfied. But uh, but the second someone um, that does kind of comedy or or anything in the arts, I guess, 
once you think, uh, once you're satisfied, um, there's a good chance your best work may be over. Oh, that, yeah, I, I guess that's true. Once you, once you say to yourself, you know, I did it, mission accomplished, goal complete, then you don't feel yeah. the urgency. You don't feel the need to keep producing better and better quality content. Absolutely, so. especially if you consider yourself anti-establishment. The, like I was talking with Letterman and the Marx Brothers, the minute... Um, and Andy Kaufman, the, um, the minute that you, uh, you're satisfied, you become establishment. That's just the way it is. So to talk about you for a bit, talk about your podcast, because I know it's relative, <laughs> um, but it's, it's definitely a funny thing. It's, it's super cool what you're doing, but I, I don't want to you know, describe it incorrectly. So you describe what it is, how you came up with the idea, and where okay. you think it's going to go. Oh, that's a good question. Um, it, uh, it seems new to young people because it's very old. It's a very old idea. It's uh, it's a variety show. And what I try to do is sort of similar to what Jack Benny did in the fifties and his radio show, the forties and thirties, and then TV in the fifties, um, is have a, has a variety show. So there's sketches and there's stand up or, or monologues and stories and there's guests and there's interviews, but there's also a show within the show. So the show also partly in a small part becomes about the show me fighting with the announcer um, or me complaining about a guest and stuff like that. Um, so it sort of has uh, the show. It's sort of like what I was saying about Steve Martin. I celebrate doing a show and I also make fun of the fact that I'm doing a show. Mm-hmm. And um, the way it started was that my New York friend, um, Phil, I should call him New York Phil, he sent me... Uh, a podcast of uh, Mark Maron, who I've loved forever. And it's amazing with Mark Maron. He's one of the funniest comics ever. And he's done this podcast, um, this interview podcast, and it's amazing. And he doesn't always try to be funny. He, he does great interviews. Whoever thought that a great stand-up comic, especially one whose persona is to be nervous and paranoid, would be a great listener and a great interviewer. But anyway, uh, New York Phil sent me the podcast of his where he talked to Todd Rundgren, uh, famous musician from the 70s and 80s, and he knew I was a fan of Todd Rundgren. And the New York, uh, I loved it, and the New York Phil said, uh, you talk so much about music, Kevin. You should have a podcast where you just uh, uh, interview musicians, just musicians. And so we got a production company that was interested in that, and that's what we were going to do. And then the producers got a great theater, and they wanted to do it live. And then my uh, cheap instincts kicked in. I, I thought, well, if I want to do something live, why do something that I'm not good at, at least not good at yet, like interview people? Um, why do I make a whole show? And that's when I started thinking of the Jack Benny thing, where it's like a, like a, a whole variety show, sketches, monologues, songs, uh, guests, um, uh, interviews, um, everything. And, um, and that's sort of how we, we got into that. And uh, where to go is uh, I'm not sure. It's I I think where to go is me not being afraid of changing the format to fit what the show's about. For example, in two weeks I'm doing one in Seattle, and the guest is I just have one guest, and it's a musician, um, not a uh, comedian. Usually I have a musician, a comedian, every show. It's a musician. It's Ben Gibbard, the uh, leader for uh, Death Cab for Cutie. And um, he, I know him a little bit, so we can have fun with him. So what I've done is written, the whole show is going to be a, a mini rock opera that I just finished writing, <laughs> like in three weeks. It's a lot of the same chords, because I've been writing it three weeks, but it's a mini rock opera. And he's going to do that with me, and, a, and a, we're going to have a cast. And then that'll be like a little more than half the show, and the rest of the show will be me interviewing him. So Because uh, I always get stuck in formats. I think if it goes anywhere interesting... It'll be that if I change the format up to fit the guest or to fit the show. And also, I don't know if you mean this, but also the form, I would love to do this as a TV show or a show on something like Netflix or something. And I think once we get our legs uh, and we're more confident of it, I think we're going to start pitching that. Yeah, I, the, way, the way I think of your show is I think of it as like a carnival. That's how I think Yeah. Because That's good. I like that. You know, you know, like when you go to a carnival, you generally know what to expect, but each carnival you visit is just a little bit different. So that's how right. I like <laughs> to think 
I like to think of your show because, you know, like you were saying, how hey, you have a comedian, you have a musician, you do monologues, some sketches. Uh, so, you know, you have a general idea of what you're getting. But at the same time, it's like a complete surprise. Each episode is completely different. So, That's great. It gave me an idea. I think uh, in two podcasts, I'm going to try to guess the weight of my guests. <laughs> like pick them up and try, <laughs> try to guess the weight. Make it like a carnival. Yeah. T- totally. Or you, you can That's have great. No, I love thing. that. I love that description. I'm going to quote you the next time I'm interviewed about the podcast. Okay. Yeah. That way you can support my podcast. Yeah. I'll support- say your name and I'll say your podcast. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Uh, I'll, I'll be looking out for interviews with you yes. from here on out. Please, it'll happen eventually. I swear to God. <laughs> Every time there's not one, I'll shoot you an email and I'll be like, you got to mention me. Yeah. Required. And I'll reply next time. I swear, Max. Next time. <laughs> so. So when you're writing these shows, because like you mentioned, you're writing your rock opera, when you write them, how do you choose like who to collaborate with? Do you collaborate with the same people or how, how, how does that work? Like in terms of writing? Yeah. Or the guests? Oh, either, either one. Um, well, the, the, some of the guests I pick like old friends, like, um, like Ben for Death Cat for Cutie or Mike Myers. Um, sometimes... Uh, all my friends are busy, and then my producers um, get them. Uh, <laughs> sort of have to get them. Um, but for writing, we've done twelve. I think we're about to do our twelfth or thirteenth podcast, the variety show kind. Because sometimes I just interview musicians. I've done that a couple of times. Um, and um, let's say I've done twelve. Ten of them I've written by myself, and the okay. other two, um, because the producers. Uh, my producers, they're three young guys. I don't even think they're 30. And uh, they turn out to be like the real thing. They're great. But they also kept telling me they were comedy writers. And uh, yeah, yeah, whatever I always thought. And then a few podcasts ago, um, the theater wanted us to do two podcasts, uh, like two shows. And, um, and we only had like three weeks, so I couldn't write both shows. So I was sort of stuck to give them a chance. And they, I wrote one. Actually, mine was uh, sort of troubled. We haven't released it yet. Uh, and they wrote one, which was great. It was the T.J. Miller show. And um, he, he was great. And um, they sort of proved to me that they could write comedy. It's sort of in the same ballpark as the way I think. But it's also definitely speaks for their generation that mine can't. Um, it's sort of more negative in a way. <laughs> but... Um, but my positivity and their negativity, uh, or my positive negativity and their negative negativity make for something interesting. And then we did another podcast. They were, I rewarded them. So the next podcast I did, the one with Andy Richter and Amy Mann, mm-hmm. uh, I said, well, I'll write half and you write half. And um, that worked out well. Uh, my writing was good this time, and their writing was uh, still good. So it was a good show. And I think what I'd like to do is sometime, you know, like being in the same city with them, they're from, uh, they live in New York, and I actually sit in the same room and write with them. Because I love collaborating. I love writing by myself, and I love collaborating. Um, um, I, I love both. Because um, I'm becoming a grumpy old man, writing by myself is easier. But they, they've awakened me to how much um, my happiest hours uh, being alive in this world has been writing with the kids in the hall. Mm-hmm. It's just like the happiest thing ever. Because uh, I sort of admire, not only are they my friends, but I admire them as comics. And f- to hear their ideas, and then to be part of their ideas, or for them to hear and like one of my ideas, and then to build, to take an idea and build and build, you have something that's even three times better than the original idea, which you thought was great, is pretty exciting. Um, it's, it's sort of better than a good marriage, in a way, or <laughs> like a good life. Uh, like, to be in a writing room... Uh, a few hours a day with um, with people uh, who you're really close with and are also great. It's um, pretty amazing. And these <laughs> New York guys, I'm too old and they're too much younger. I won't have the same feeling, but it'll be pretty uh, exciting for me to do that again, I think. I think. Well, who who is somebody I thought you were going to keep when you said, I think I thought you were going to keep going on a whole new tangent. That's why I hesitated there. What did you think? What tangent do you think I was going? Huh? I, I don't. I don't know. I just I, look. I told you at the beginning of the show. You're the star, so I let you. Right, right. Oh no! I just meant, oh, I, the way I said. I think. 
Uh, sort of as a last second, I, I also like, uh, I don't have total faith it'll work out, <laughs> but, but I have total faith in that I want to do it. I, I do want to write with them. Yeah, I think, I think, it, I think it, that's a super cool idea. And I think, you know, as you continue to grow the show, I think it's only going to get better. It's only going to get better. And I'm, I'm personally am looking forward to seeing what you produce <laughs> in the future. Well, thank you very much. Also, um, uh, here, this will sound like an ass-kissing thing to say, but I, um, I also write a list uh, whenever I do the writing workshop of um, young writers that uh, I may work with in the future. If it becomes a big TV show and I have to hire staff, and your name is on that list. Ooh! Can, can, that, can I put that in quotes forever? Yes. Yes, it may to... never happen. I may have the stroke uh, when I get off the phone that, uh, that's, that I'm due for. Um, <laughs> we never, uh, it may, we may never need a staff, but yes, you're on that list and you should say it. Wow. Well, I, that is one of, okay. I, that, that is one of the coolest things I think I have ever been told in my life, but I'm honored. I appreciate that. I, I like, I very much appreciate that. I have much respect for you. So I appreciate hearing that. Thank you. And you like knowing my luck and nothing will happen. That may be the best moment of it, but uh, I'll say it one more time, then we'll repeat it again. You're on my list. Uh, look, we can end the show right now. That's it. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> no, but I, wa- I want to know, uh, who is someone who uh, you just really want to talk to? Who hasn't been on the oh, show uh, yet, but you, you just, um, you, that, it's one person that you're just like, yeah, I, I need to learn about them or talk to them. It's funny. Does it have to be a comedian? It doesn't. Does not have to be a comedian. When I was younger, during the Kids in the Hall days, uh, I fell in love with. Like I'm from, I'm a teenager in the '70s, and you know, as I told you, my first memories are the Beatles. And uh, then when I was 17, punk and new wave came. Uh, so I fell in love with the Clash and the Jam and XTC and Elvis Costello, and that sort of music defined me. And when I was a young guy in my 20s and the 80s, the Pixies and the Replacements. Are very important to me, but, um, but I'm open-minded. I'm not just a stupid white guy, <laughs> and I fell in love with the. <laughs> I fell in love with Public Enemy, and I've always had this feeling that I want to talk with Chuck D. <laughs> that wow. I, I feel that we can become really good friends. Uh, I think our point of views will complement each other, and um, and we'll get an idea and work on something together. And I've thought that for 25 years, and it hasn't happened. And I saw they made a reunion concert where I'm living here in Winnipeg a few years ago. It was the first, it was a reunion tour. It was the first concert of the tour. And uh, I got backstage passes, and, um, but Chuck D had gone already. Like he said goodnight and went right to the van. Um, uh, so I talked to Flavor Flav for, <laughs> for a little bit, and that was, that was fun. But uh, Chuck D uh, was sort of be the guy I wanted to talk to the most. You know, when I was asking that question, I, I thought to myself, okay, I was, you know, preparing myself. If you were going to say someone who's like really famous, or maybe you would say some obscure, like Canadian comedian, I, <laughs> I will tell you right now that hearing you mention Public Enemy and Chuck D was not yes. on my list of possibilities for the answer <laughs> to that question. But I think that is super cool. And I would love to see Chuck D do some type of silly sketch or tell silly jokes on... I know, because he's so serious. That would right. be, uh, It would be really funny to see him do silly stuff. Right, to take him out of his element and just do yeah. be a goofball. I think that'd be hysterical. Yeah, I feel he has a good sense of humor. I don't know. I don't know him yet, but maybe I will one day. Of course, I would also say like Steve Martin and Woody Allen and things like that. Um, uh, but uh, And I may have said that if you'd asked me this uh, 4 p.m. tomorrow in a different mood, but... Chuck D is definitely someone I would want to. Um, I've always thought we'd be friends. I always thought that for some reason. I don't know why. So speaking of um, uh, Chuck D and Steve Martin, two names who don't normally go together, but in this question <laughs> they do. Uh, yeah. You are pretty much like the first uh, famous person who I've ever gotten to talk to, and yeah. um, and and ever since I was a little kid, I actually started watching Dave Letterman when I was about four or five years old, and. I've always wanted to ask a celebrity this question, and yeah. I don't know if you can answer it. I hope you can answer yeah. it because this is the one question I've literally been thinking about all day long. Um, yes. Who is the most famous person that you have as a contact on your cell phone? Oh, geez. 
Uh, I should look it up. I'm looking at my phone right now. I, I've I have, always been uh, curious to ask <laughs> to ask a famous person this question. I'll forget someone. Uh, I, oh, there's Bob Saget. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. It's a good one. Um, Tom Green. Oh, that's a good one, too. Ben from Death Cat for Cutie. Oh, I guess Mike Myers. All of them are good. All of them are good answers. Yeah. Yeah, I guess Mike Myers. Uh, the, yeah, the, did I say the Black Crows? <laughs> I don't know if you remember them anymore. Uh, they were big in the 90s. Um, we were about to get friendly with Kurt Cobain of Nirvana. Um, we were uh, touring in 94, and we were playing Seattle. And then uh, two days before we got there, he was on the guest list. He'd contacted us, and he wanted to see us and hang out with us afterwards. And then I guess our tour took too long, and he committed suicide. Oh. Uh, so, so it's our fault. Um, but we were about to come friends with Kurt Cobain. Wow. So you could maybe Kurt Cobain could have been your answer to that question if everything had. Yeah. You no, know, you never know. But yeah. <laughs> as as uh, my final question for the show, I ask I ask all my guests this because as someone who is trying to learn as much about comedy as I possibly can, um, I like to to ask this question, and it's. If you were to give one piece of advice to someone who's aspiring to achieve what you've achieved in life, or if you could tell your younger self something, what right. would you what would you say to them? What would you tell them? Um, well, it, it sounds hokey, but I, I mean it, and I say it all the time. Um, whatever it is that you do, whether it's just improv, or whether it's just writing sketches, or whether it's more than that, whether it's improvising, writing sketches, and performing whether it's stand-up comedy, whether it's singing, whether it's painting art. Um, and right now you're like 20 and 21 and it's not the way you make your living. It doesn't matter. Do it all the time. Do it all the time and get good at it. It's uh, get what I call the confidence of experience. I probably said that in the workshop that you took um, uh, because it's sort of like what I call watching the puppy grow. Um, you have a little puppy and you don't know it's growing until you go away for a week and you come back and, oh, the puppy's bigger. And um, it's the same with, uh, let's say, I'll talk about writing sketches because that's what I do uh, and performing them. Um, the more you, I did it, the more silently I was getting better at it until people were, like, telling me, that, wow, you're really good at that now. And I, really? Because I didn't see the difference. I was just, like, um, doing it a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, I would say... Uh, Keep working at it. Just like I always tell this story, the, the kids in the hall, we for a year, we were just a stage troupe, and we did new sketches on our stage show every Monday. And then um, after a year, we sort of were getting like cult big in Toronto, uh, but that means nothing. And so then one of us, Mark McKinney, said, um, we do new sketches every uh, week. We have so many good sketches. Why don't we um, do a bit, like rent the theater and do a best of? And we... Um, we did a, a best of a theater and we got amazing reviews and we became a bigger thing. And that was in 1985 when Lauren Michaels, after being away from Saturday Night Live for five years, made the big public announcement that he was coming back. And that's how we were discovered. Um, because I feel that you get your lucky break two or three times a year, <laughs> but you only it's invisible unless you're ready for it. And you're only ready for it if you've worked for it. And um, we were ready in the summer of 85 to be discovered by Lauren Michaels. We didn't know that was going to happen, but we had worked so much. We had written hundreds of sketches, and we have gotten so good at it, we were ready for it. So that's the advice I would give. Well, I like that. You know, keep working and just I, – I really like what you said about the lucky break, how it comes two to three times a year, but you, you all don't think. see it when you're ready for it. I really like that. I think that's that's a super cool idea to have at the – the back of your head, just to always be working yeah. for it. Um, but that's awesome. Yeah, you, you say, oh, I just walked down the street. I just missed my lucky break. I should have gone in that door. But once you're ready, you'll go. You'll open that door, and it'll happen. Exactly. Or, you know, you could also apply it where if you, like, fall downstairs and you end up breaking <laughs> the hand you don't write with, that is also a lucky break. So there's, just, there's a <laughs> Literally. lot of, there's, yeah, Literally. You can apply it to a lot of different areas in your life. Yes. But uh, Kevin, I want to, I want, it's my turn to ask this now. I really want to thank you for being on the show. I look up to you. Um, your show 
is just so funny. I love watching sketches and I'm, I'm just very grateful, very appreciative that you would take the time and be on my show today. Thank you very much. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a fun talk. It went by very quickly and you're on my list. And look, if, look, I'm, I'm going to, I'm just going to lay this out here. If you ever need a co-host for your podcast, you you're have the guy. Well, if I ever do a show in Atlanta, cause I get a different announcer every, um, uh, like every episode, you would be my announcer. That's a co-host. That is the co-host. There you go. You look you reach out. I'm, I'm available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a matter of time. I'm going to come to Atlanta. I'm going to do it. Uh, so it's a matter. It's only a matter of time. All right. Well, then I will see you when you get here. And for okay, <laughs> meet you at the airport. <laughs> I'll pick you Maybe up. It's just a con job. It's just for you to drive me around. <laughs> and then I go. Oh, there's no show. It fell through. No, it's going to happen. I swear. Okay. Well, I'm uh, all right. Then I will. I will see you, and I will. I'll buy you dinner. Thank you very much. See you at the airport. We'll pick a nice restaurant. <laughs> Will do. And for everyone who's listening, please, please, thank you for tuning in. Rate us on Facebook. Give us a five-star review, please. Like our page and also check us out on iTunes and leave us a review there as well. If you want to check out other episodes of Talking Late Night, you can visit our website at www.talkinglatenight.com. A big thank you again to Kevin McDonald. You can thank check you. out his podcast, Kevin McDonald's Kevin McDonald Show. And you can also go on YouTube to check out all the sketches from Kids in the Hall. They're all very yeah. funny. And they're all weirdly, weirdly weird, but in the best yeah, way Yeah, there's some bad ones, but they're weird. They're all weird. And Look, and I, I say weird as total positive, total positive thank about you. being weird. So thank you for tuning in again, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>